This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on CityCast Madison. The artificial intelligence revolution is coming, and UW-Madison wants to be at the forefront of machine learning technology. Earlier this month, the university announced a new hiring initiative in hopes to bring 50 new AI researchers to Wisconsin's flagship university. Helping lead this initiative is UW's second-in-command, Provost Charles Isbell, who was hired in August. Isbell is a nationally recognized computer scientist who has been researching AI and machine learning for decades. Today, a real-life human being will be asking him the tough questions. It's Tuesday, February 20th. I'm Dylan Brogan, and here's what Madison's talking about. Provost, thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right. Well, we're here to talk about artificial intelligence. So can you just define it for us? What is artificial intelligence in your mind? Uh, That's a wonderful question. When I think about artificial intelligence, a lot of technical definitions come to mind. But honestly, I think there are two that sort of capture what AI really is. Uh, One is uh, it's sort of the art, science, engineering, and computing of making computers act the way they do in the movies. We have this sort of model in our head of what computers can do, and they're kind of magical in a particular way. Um, And you see that in uh, popular culture, the way that we do science fiction, whether it's Star Trek or 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever your your favorite movie is, that's what AI is. And if you want to think about it in a slightly more serious way, I would say that what AI is, it's, it's the art of making things that if human beings did them, we would call them intelligent. So really the goal of AI is to make certain that we build systems that behave the way human beings behave. How do you think AI will transform UW-Madison? That, that's your hope, isn't it? That is absolutely our hope. So the thing about AI is that you can ask the question, how is it going to transform the things that we do, what we do at UW? Well, it's already transformed. What we do is transformed everything about the world. And if you really want to see this, you should just think about AI as the next logical thing after computing and automation. You can ask how AI is going to transform what we do. You're asking how are computers, how have computers transformed what we do and what we're going to do. They've changed everything. This conversation that we're having, was it really possible the way that we're doing it even 20 years ago and not the way that we're doing it now even 10 years ago? Now imagine the big changes that have happened since the World Wide Web, since Google came to us, since Amazon, since Twitter, all of those things happened. Now imagine that in 20, 30, 40 more years. It's going to transform everything. And you'll see it in two ways. You see it in the way that we do research. Um, it's completely changed the way that we think about uh, what it means to actually do science, the computing and simulation, helping us to predict where we should be going next has accelerated everything because of computing and specifically because of AI and machine learning. But it's also fundamentally changing the way that we think about education, the way that students interact with one another, the way that they interact with faculty, the way that we just talk and communicate with one another. Students now have access to data in a way that they've never had before. Uh, They have 
tools, they have support mechanisms that help them to write, that help them to check what they're doing. Uh, it's going to change just the way that people interact with one another. And therefore, it's going to change what we do at UW. Well, I want to talk more about that, about how students are using it currently. But just as an institution, I mean, is UW-Madison, do we need this to be on like the forefront of being a cutting edge, world-class research university like UW has been for so many years? Absolutely. There is no way for anyone to move forward, the science, the scholarship, everything that we do without being imminent in AI, computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, all of the things that are that are part of that ecosystem. It won't be possible to be a historian uh, in five years, 10 years without understanding some computer science, some data science. Because if you think about the way that we interact with the world, it's all data-driven. It's human beings leaving footprints out in the, the world. Um, and computers help us to automate looking at those things. It would have taken us 20, 30, 100 years worth of human time. We can now do in hours, days, and weeks. Um, if you can't master that, if you haven't integrated that into what you do, you cannot be at the forefront of anything, much less science, much less the way that we, we do discovery. And further, because this is such a big deal, because it changes the way that we do everything, you can't understand or wrap your head around it um, if you don't think about the ethics, you don't think about what it means to put human beings at the center of what you're doing. You rethink the way that you do design. Otherwise, you build systems that have all these massive impacts on the world, but you have no control over human beings aren't a part of the conversation. It's simply impossible. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but I think it's impossible to be an active participant citizen without understanding something about computing and AI. So that probably gets us to the RISE initiative, right? That's happening over the next three to five years. UW-Madison says they'll hire more than 100 new faculty through this new initiative. So up to 50 of those new faculty positions will be to research AI. What will these researchers be doing? So the folks that we're going to hire, I've got two answers to what they're going to be doing. Uh, one is we don't yet know because we don't yet know where we're going to be in three, four, five, six years. On the other hand, we know it's going to be around AI. We know it's going to be applications of AI. We know it's going to put humans at the center of it. And we know that it's going to touch every aspect of every discipline at the university. As you know, uh, Madison has many strengths, and one of them is that it is a true, broad, comprehensive university. There's a law school here. There's an ed school here. There's ag. There's human ecology, as well as engineering and, and various medical sciences, there's everything here. And every single bit of it is touched by AI and machine learning. So the goal here is not just to hire a few more faculty or even many more faculty, but to hire them together and to accelerate so that they can interact with one another and cross all these disciplinary boundaries that people artificially put between the work that we do. The idea is that this is one of many grand challenges, and grand challenges are things that you can't just do as a computer scientist like I am, or you can't just do as an engineer, you can't just do as a lawyer, you just can't do as a sociologist. It's something that requires all of us working together in order to touch. It's a big deal, and it requires people who speak many different languages, who have many different perspectives and many different experiences in order for us to take advantage of. So that would include a lot of disciplines, not just computer science. That's right. If you look deeply into the details, and you'll see this over the next couple of years, uh, the law school is involved. Uh, our School of Human Ecology is one of the, the leaders of this effort. Engineering, of course, SMPH, uh, our, our medical school, uh, as well as computer science and data science and, and information science. So every single person is touched by this, and every single person, every single discipline will eventually touch it. So I heard your uh, UW Madison's having a little bit of trouble uh, with the state government lately, having to do with getting things paid for. How, how are we going to pay for this influx of, of new staff? And are you worried about maybe legislative hurdles or just what's going on with the UW and uh, how it's funded? 
Well, one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is that we've grown. Our enrollment has grown. Our uh, research expenditures have grown, and that's generated funds that have made it possible for us to invest more quickly than we otherwise would have done. And it's a virtuous cycle, right? So if you invest in this and you bring in 100 people, you bring in 50 people specifically in this area, you bring in 25 in this sub-area, you put them together, they're able to get grants that we otherwise would not be able to get. You're able to bring together people to try for these big things that um, the feds and other interested parties are investing in, which generates more money, which allows us to invest more quickly. And so it grows and grows and grows faster. So now's the time to invest uh, so that you can get the payoff faster than you would have if you invested at a slower pace. So we've been lucky. We've uh, been fortunate in that we've been able to get enough funds to start this investment. We're placing a bet. And when it pays off, we're going to be able to go even faster than we would have before. And we'll be having this conversation in five years about the next round of investment that we're doing in AI and in other areas. So that's the way we're able to do it. Well, it sounds like it's just the beginning of something. Absolutely. I mean, well, if we go back 30, 40, 50 years when AI first started to be a thing, you would say, oh, this this seems like an interesting thing. Had its ups, had its down. People in the area like I am still remember the AI winter of the late 80s and the early 90s when the hype cycle sort of burst uh, and there was a retrenchment. But it came back and it came back even stronger. A lot of the technology and the words you hear like generative models and deep learning, those things were around in the 70s and in the 80s. They went away and they came back because we now have the tools, we have the data, we have the compute that we can actually show the things that were just a promise 40 years ago are now things that are reality. So, you know, ask me again in five or 10 years, but we will see a completely different world and I don't even know what it's going to look like. All right. Well, you weren't an academic 40 years ago. But you were looking at AI in the 90s, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you've been studying this for a long time. What did AI even look like 20 years ago, 30 years ago? And what made you want to study it? Well, it looked a lot the way it looks now, except smaller and slower. Uh, For my own thesis work, I did uh, something that I thought was really big. It was a gigabytes of data, uh, which is, you know, we've generated gigabytes of data just since we started this conversation. Back then, it seemed like big. It seemed like a hard thing. Now, it's just the everyday thing. So... That's what's changed is the scale of it and the fact that human beings are getting human data. That's what makes it kind of exciting. But even back then, you could tell it was going to be exciting. What got me into it were really the deep philosophical questions. So what would it mean to actually build something that was truly intelligent the way a human being is intelligent? What would it mean to build a system that could be a partner that would understand what I was doing, that I would be able to have a conversation with, that I would be able to treat socially, that I would be able to think as something with its own culture, with its own ideas, its own intention? How would it feel to build that sort of thing and then have it be a part of the world that I lived in. It was very exciting then. Um, It's exciting now. So what disciplines at UW do you think are most vulnerable to change from AI? All of them. Every single one of them. Okay, so I'm a UW-Madison freshman. Mm -hmm. Um, How is that going to affect just the courses I take my very first semester in college? Tell me your major. Communication arts, let's say that, since that's my degree from UW. What is communications arts? It's about text. It's about culture. It's about human interaction, right? You're recording human interaction. You're, you're synthesizing it. You're bringing it and you're describing it to the world, right? Mm-hmm. AI is going to be there in the middle of that, right? AI is going to give you access to more people, more of their data, things that they don't even know that they're doing. Your phone, right? 
is following you around everywhere. It knows every other phone that you interact with. It's just pinging it with uh, Wi-Fi or whatever. It knows everything. I promise you, Apple knows everything about where you are. Elon Musk knows everywhere that you're going, right? All of that data is there. You're trying to do communications. You now understand how people interact with one another. You have to understand how people interact with one another in order to do your job. And once the data is there, it tells a story. And you, your job is to understand and share that story. And you now just have more access to it than you ever would have had before. And if you don't understand what data science looks like, if you don't understand what computer science looks like, if you don't understand the implications of those data trails and seeing those footprints everywhere, then how could you possibly be a good communications arts major, much less a good journalist. That's a pretty good answer. Okay. Uh, well, what about just the struggles right now with adapting to what seems like a very transformational period of time that we are in, where this is just starting to really come online in terms of everyday people's lives. What I hear about uh, chat GPT and other things going on with UW professors is like, it's taking away from uh, the core principle of teaching kids how to write. Like it's being used inappropriately. So, you know, and, and you kind of scoffed a little bit right there about when I brought that up about plagiarism, stuff like that. How, what do you make about that? I'm sure a lot of professors come to you and being like, hey, we're talking so much about AI, but meanwhile, you know, kids aren't writing their essays. So I, I got two answers for you on that. One is uh, it's a good and happy, optimistic place. And one is it's a terrible world that we live in. Which would you like to hear first? Well, let's hear the, um, the terrible place first. All right, here's the terrible world that we're in. You now have access to tools that will do an enormous amount of work for you and in a way that is plausible. So what does that mean? Here, I'll, I'll use an analogy that, that um, hopefully resonates with everyone, but certainly should resonate with the journalist. So there are writers and there are editors, right? Most of us, as we move through our lives, we increasingly become editors. It's impossible for me to do my job without taking uh, information, including the written word given to me. And I use that as a starting point to, to hopefully to make it better. Right. So I'm an editor now, but I think anyone who's been a good editor knows, uh, that it's hard to be a good editor without at least being a good writer first. And the problem we have with these tools is that they're so plausible and they can generate so much based on the data that they've been exposed to is that they make all of us editors, but might allow us to skip the step of being writers. And you can't be a good editor without being a good writer. You can't even know that what ChatGPT or whatever has generated for you is good, bad, or indifferent unless you know enough to be able to see that, unless you've had the experience yourself. So the bad world that we in is that we've given people so many tools that allow them to be plausible that they can fool themselves and others into thinking that they actually know what they're talking about or that they've done something interesting and you don't necessarily have the, the background to realize it. So that's the horrible world that we are walking into. There's some other parts of it too, which I'm happy to talk about that involve people. Yeah, let's hear the more optimistic world that you're that you're envisioning. So here's the more optimistic world. I can now do things that I couldn't possibly do before, and I can do them faster and at a scale that was almost inconceivable uh, within a generation or so. Right? If you really think about AI not as a tool that you were using to get over on something, but rather as a partnership, like a spell checker or you know something that can help you to see or that does a search for you much faster than you would be able to do it, uh, then it's an incredible boon for your ability to learn and to sort of amplify your own thoughts, right? One of the things that we know is there's this concept called centaurs, right? Um, you know, based on the the Greek myth of a half horse, half half man, where it turns out that you know a human being that's good at say chess plays chess pretty well. A machine that you program to play chess does it even better. Turns out if you put the two together, you get an even better result. And the reason that is, is because people are particularly good at 
chunking and looking out in the world and figuring out, oh, this is the place where you should be paying attention. And the machines are really, really good at counting really, really fast and sort of going and, and drilling down. And those things together complement. And so together, you're better off than you are separately. And that is a really positive view of the world, right? That I can write better. I can learn more. I can present more information. I can study and just discover more because I have a partner uh, in the AI. So that's the optimistic world that we that I see and that I think is where we're going. And you sound like an optimist in, in this AI world, but what scares you about this technology? Well, two things, and really they're one thing. What computers are good at is they do the things we tell them to do exceptionally well. In fact, they do exactly what we tell them to do, which is not the same thing as what we want them to do. So what's scary about AI is that it will do what we ask and it will do it without question and it will do it in brutal efficiency. So let me, let me tell you how this kind of shows up in the real world. So we know that AI has been used to make things faster, more efficient for many, many years now. But it turns out that the systems that we build uh, encode our biases. They, they encode the mistakes that we make. Amazon rolled out a system to help it be far more efficient um, at evaluating potential candidates for hiring. And it turns out they had to take it out of uh, practice. Why? Because what the system learned is that you should hire men and not women. Why? Was there some objective reality to that? The objective reality is that's what they were doing. They weren't necessarily aware of it, but that's what they were doing. And it learned it. So it did exactly what we asked it to do, which was to be like ourselves, right? And there's tons of examples like this. And what they really boil down to, in my view, uh, is we have built a system and we're designing it as if it is a simple engineering problem where the, the goal is to solve this tiny little problem. But the kinds of problems we're asking it to solve are actually very broad. They're much bigger than the specific thing we're asking it to do. Help us be a little faster in hiring. Build a system that's going to generate better images than, than I would get from this choppy imager to take this noisy audio signal that I have and clean it up for me. It feels as if that's a very simple and crisp problem or set of problems, but actually it's much, much, much bigger. So I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind, about Please something do. that, that actually involved me. So there's this system out there in, in the world. This is just around the time of the pandemic uh, when it got out there. And it, it took these sort of low quality images and it would make high quality images out of them, which is actually pretty amazing kind of technical feat. And it worked, it worked really well. And the use case was take a picture, downsample it so it's all blocky and messed up looking, run it through this system and it would generate a crisp, beautiful image. And so they released it out into the world and several million people started playing with it. And someone had the bright idea. Oh, I know what we'll do. I'll start running celebrities through it. I'll take these pictures, see what it generates. It does a really good job. And then someone said, hey, why don't we put Barack Obama in there and see what happens? And do you know what happened? Took a picture of Barack Obama, made it blocky and choppy, and then generated a clean image. And it was a wonderful image of what I think anybody would recognize as a white male. Okay, that's interesting, a little strange. Well, what if I throw this other person in? Well, it turned out it just kept turning people who are not white into white people. By the way, it took pictures of women and it made them smile. So something about the data that it was using uh, made it so that it would turn people into a particular kind of ethnicity. And you might say to yourself, well, this is just bad data. Uh, so I'm going to uh, trade it on different data, people from Senegal, for example. And then it'll work better or it'll, it'll turn everyone into darker skinned people. Well, it turns out it didn't work at all. It wasn't just a data problem. There were deep 
technical engineering decisions that had been made long earlier on in the process of design that set it up so that it was really good at doing one kind of thing and very poor at doing another kind of thing. In fact, because this is what I do for a living, people took images of me and ran it through the system. And it took this person you see here in front of you, and it made me uh, blonde uh, and made me look like something anyone would recognize as a white male. It also added 40 pounds, which is the thing that made me most upset. But in any case, it sort of, it did this kind of a thing. Now, these things are fixable, presumably, but the fact that they're fixable technically isn't really the issue for me. The real question I think you should ask yourself is, how in the world did this happen in the first place? Like, why didn't it occur to anybody to test it on a wide range of people in order to see what it would do? And the answer is, it was because of the people who were in the room, or more importantly, the people who weren't in the room. So the problem with these tools, the things that I really think about when you want to build these systems, is you have to involve as many people as possible, not just the engineers who are working on it or the programmer who's doing this little bit or the manager who's trying to do marketing or whatever. You have to involve all the people who are going to be affected by it because they're going to see things that you aren't going to see. In retrospect, it's obvious they should have tested this, yes. but it wasn't obvious. It's, it wasn't at all obvious at the time. And I'm sure all of us make these kind of mistakes all the time. Well, what frightens me about that is the computers don't lie, and that yeah. they really revealed some deep truths about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That maybe are hard to see on the surface, but then when you, the way that problem you described, well, that went all the way back to the very founding of computer generation of those images, right? Yeah. By the way, I mean, I'm going to go too far out of the the field of AI, but you know. These sorts of things are true for uh, the way photography worked over a century ago, right? The cameras were designed specifically for uh, paler skinned people against a dark contrasting background, and they did very poor job uh, with people who were of darker skin. And that didn't get fixed until decades later when the industry required it because you had to film mahogany furniture and you had to take pictures of chocolate and you had to do these kinds of things. It, these are all engineering decisions and if the right and they're trade-offs. And if the right people aren't in the room, then you end up with something that encodes what feels objective, but is actually subjective bias. So one of the reasons we're pursuing this big initiative and we're trying to involve as many disciplines and as many people as possible is because we don't want to create technology that will get out in the world, have these amazing and massive impacts, and not have involved a bunch of perspectives and a bunch of different people uh, in the room to have the conversation. When you look at these kinds of problems and you ask yourself, you know, what really happened there? It's about invisibility, right? And, and we tend to think of invisibility as you're standing in front of me and I don't see you. But that's not actually the real kind of invisibility. The real invisibility is that you're not in the room with me and I don't notice your absence. So we cannot build, we cannot solve big problems, certainly not ones like AI, without having as many people as possible in the room to point out the things that only in retrospect and only years later become obvious when we could have figured it out early on before we had in engaged in the technical debt of making poor design decisions. So part of this RISE initiative is that UW could be at the center at all of these decisions and, and do it in a responsible way. So what do you see as Madison's advantage compared to other schools that you know may be better well known for tech like MIT or Stanford, or what's the advantage of UW-Madison being at the forefront of this? We are huge. We have two things going for us. Scale. Actually, it's one thing. It's scale. It's just scale in two different ways. You know, there are 50,000 students here, right? We have a ton of faculty, a ton of academic staff. We have all of these people who can work on this really big problem. 
and just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, we have people from a wide variety of backgrounds who can see these sorts of problems and see things that any small subset of them would not be able to see. So we have, again, the land grant um, uh, folks. We have extension. Uh, we have the people who do law. We have the people who do education. We have the engineers. We have the scientists. We have everybody who can see these problems from um, different vantage points, and they're all on the same campus. The reason to hire 50 instead of five is to bring together people across these boundaries and to make certain that they're having these conversations and you're building the infrastructure to do that. See, when we talk about this, when we talk about the initiative, people focus on the number of faculty we're going to hire. And they, they think about it that way. But the other part of it is all the infrastructure, the facilities, the centers we're going to build. They're going to bring all of these people who otherwise would not be talking together. So it's not just about hiring five more people or 40% more than you would have hired before, which is what we're going to do, but it's about making certain that they can be in the same building. It's about making certain that we figure out how they build new degree programs that connect the lawyer with the um, mechanical engineer, uh, with the computer scientist, right? It's all of the other stuff that you can only do if you bring lots of people together to kind of create that critical mass and that energy. That's what this is about. That's why it's this big. Yeah, you mentioned UW Law School a few times, which is interesting because we're talking about AI, but can UW Law School like be part of what seems to me the inevitable task of regulating AI in some aspect? And, and you know, how much confidence do you have that in our democracy that we'll be able to do that, to regulate AI? So it brings out its positives and not its negatives. Uh, we don't have a choice but to figure out how to regulate it whether it's self-regulated or it's done through um, government agencies, we have to figure that out. And you need people who think that way. You need your public policy people. You need your political scientists. You need your sociologists. And you need your lawyers who are going to be in the room. You used a word earlier that I think is really important. A lot of people talk about ethics. I prefer the word responsibility, which is the word that you use. We have to think about this as responsibility. What does it mean to build technology in a responsible way? We should always be thinking about that. But we're talking about not a new widget that you're building or even a single bridge that you're building. We're talking about something that once you build it, gets released in the world and six billion people have it the next day, right? The speed with which it can reach out into the world is so fast and the its scope is so vast that you have to build that notion of responsibility in from the very beginning because once it gets out there in the world, it's too late. So just before we go, you just moved to Madison relatively recently. What surprised you most about Madison? Uh, the snow. I would call it a snowstorm. I, I think you would just call it January. Uh, as more snow than I had seen in the previous quarter century combined. This winter has been easy. This is nothing. See, yeah. you think that's helpful, but that's not helpful <laughs> at all. It's not helpful at all. Uh, the biggest surprise, aside from the weather, is that this place really is as advertised. It really does believe in the Wisconsin idea. It really does believe that what it is that we're doing has to go not just inside the campus and the ivory tower, but has to touch the city, the state, and the world. I mean, it's what drew me here. Uh, and it turns out that nobody was making it up. It really is the broad university trying to change the world that it purports to be. And I think that that's inspiring, frankly. Provost Isabel, thank you for joining me today. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. I hope we get to have you back on the show again soon because there's a, a lot of big things we could talk to you about. Anytime. My pleasure was all mine. That was UW Madison Provost Charles Isbell. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Dylan Brogan. If you enjoyed today's show, why not share this episode with someone who passes the Turing test? 
We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Until then, 